is Baseball Tonight, the podcast. This is the Baseball Tonight podcast for Friday, June 16, 2023, and today will be better than yesterday. Working from Omaha today, right, Sarah? If I'm, or did you already yeah. go from? I'm trying. We're in Omaha today. Yeah, that's what I saw the background. I remember when you first started working on the show, you were you had that same background. So you're working from Omaha. Taylor Schwenk is working from the Schwenk Studios just outside of Bristol, Connecticut. I'm Buster Olney, uh, working from my home in Montana. And I'm going to give you guys a heads up. I need you to get ready to answer this question, okay? Which is going to be the question of the podcast today. Who would you pick as of today to win the World Series? You guys ready to answer that during the show? 100%. Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, let's start by talking about surging teams, the Philadelphia Phillies. Sarah's Philadelphia Phillies, they face the Diamondbacks. They continue to be red hot. They are down 4-3 to three in the top of the fourth inning, and this is what happened. Here's Schwarber, and he rips one into the right field corner. That's down and fair and going to the wall. Stubbs on his way into third. He'll be waved around. The relay by Marte. It's not in time. Stubbs with a head first dive across the plate. He's tied the game. Scoring from first on the double by Schwarber. And it's 4-4. Scott Fransky, Sports Radio 94 WIP. Bryce Harper followed. 0-1. Swung on line the other way. A base hit into left center. Schwarber is home to score. Turner will stop at second. And Bryce Harper has put the Phillies back in front. It's 5-4 to four Phillies. And with Aaron Nola on the mound, that would be the final score, 5-4. to four. They've won 10 of their last 12 games. The Guardians have been playing better of late. If you look at the Cleveland through Terry Francona's 10 years manager, they consistently get better as the season goes along from month to month. Uh, they faced the Padres yesterday. David Fry helped build an early lead. The pitch. Swung out and drilled. Deep left. Down the line. Gone! A laser three-run home run down the left field line by David Fry. It is 5-0 Cleveland. And the Boo Birds are out at Petco Park. Yeah. Uh, San Diego fell behind. They never caught up. That, of course, was Tom Hamilton, WTAM, 1100. Cleveland has won 11 of their last 19 games. Maybe the Guardians making a move to the top of the American League Central. The game of the day, the biggest game, the Angels and the Rangers in Texas, the final game of that four-game series. And Shohei Otani, uh, after he pitched six solid innings, came to the plate in the top of the eighth inning with uh, the Angels leading 3-2. to two. Here's Shohei swinging and driving a ball deep out into left center, and that one lands in the second deck. Otani has hit another home run in this series. Another two-run homer. The Angels add on, and the Angels now have a 5-2 lead. Angels Radio AM 30. They would win the game 5-3. We're going to be talking with Carl Ravitch, Sarah Langs, about Otani and what he's accomplishing this year, and maybe a little bit of a question mark. Rays, athletics, it was three all top of the eighth inning in Oakland, and this happened. Rays just haven't had base runners as a pitch is drilled deep to center field. Way back, Ruiz, looking up, gone! The Rays' first hit since the fourth inning is a home run for Luke Rayleigh, and the Rays do take the lead. 4-3 here in the eighth. That would be the final score. Orioles, Blue Jays. The score was tied bottom of the sixth inning. One, two. Santander, hard ball off of the glove of Vladimir Guerrero Jr. Here comes Austin Hayes. Adley Rutschman gets a stop sign. Anthony Santander drives in a run, and the Orioles take a 3-2 lead. Melanie Newman, WBAL. The final score there was 4-2. So now you got to answer the question, Taylor, Sarah. Uh, we'll start with you, Sarah. Who would you pick as of today to win the World Series? Listen, I'm going to go the Phillies because they are on a hot streak and I am loyal and I respect them deeply. So I'm going to go with the Phillies. Yep. Lifelong <laughs> Phillies fan. Taylor, what about you? I'm going to go with the Tampa Bay Rays. Uh, Tyler Glasnow, we were talking off mic. He he was hyping up the defense, which is always solid there. But him and Shane McClanahan, you got that one-two punch. They're hitting home runs. I mean, it's what's not to like right now? Yeah, they're a really good team. But you know what? 
I've got the Atlanta Braves because they're playing well. And I'll explain in my conversation with Carl Ravage why it's not only about how well the Braves are playing, it's context that they're playing. And they faced the Rockies yesterday, bottom of the second inning. Ozzy Albies moved up in the lineup, came to the plate with the base loaded. 2-2 on the way to Ozzy. And he connects, and that's a fair ball right on down the line and up against the sidewall. This is going to clear the bases. It's a three-RBI double for Ozzy. Yeah, and they would go on and beat the Rockies 8-3. to three, That call from 680, the fan. A.J. Smith-Schauber, 20 years old. Guys, he's so new. I noticed this today when I was preparing for the podcast on his player profile page on ESPN. We don't have a picture of him. He's 20 years old, and he came out of nowhere. He joined the Braves rotation, Taylor. It's like someone created him, like your son created him in MLB The Show and uploaded him onto the Braves roster. Exactly. Nevada Governor Joe Lombardo on Thursday signed a bill pledging $380 million in taxpayer money toward a $1.5 billion stadium for the Oakland Athletics to move to Las Vegas. Major League Baseball Commissioner Rob Manfred, in the middle of the owners' meetings, talked about the situation with the possibility of the A's leaving Oakland for Las Vegas. I feel sorry for the fans in Oakland. I do not like this outcome. I understand why they feel the way they do. I think that the real question is, what is it that Oakland was prepared to do? There is no Oakland offer. Okay, I mean, they they never got to the point where they had a plan to build a stadium at any site. And it's not just John Fisher. You don't build a stadium based on the club activity alone. The community has to provide support. And, you know, at some point you come to the realization it's just not going to happen. And look, that statement got a lot of response, not only from the city of Oakland, but from folks around baseball, because. So we know they've been talking to the city of Oakland. Oakland's mayor's office gave a statement to ESPN. This was it. There was a very concrete proposal under discussion, and Oakland had gone above and beyond to clear hurdles, including securing funds for infrastructure, providing an environmental review, and working with other agencies to finalize proposals. The reality is the A's ownership had insisted on a multi-billion dollar, 55-acre project that included a ballpark residential, commercial, and retail space. In Las Vegas, for whatever reason, they seem satisfied with a nine-acre leased ballpark on leased lands. If they had proposed a similar project in Oakland, we feel confident a new ballpark would already be under construction. We're going to be talking with Carl about <laughs> what Rob said didn't seem with what, uh, what happened in the past, and uh, we'll give our thoughts on that. Taylor, what else you got? Buster, I've got a very disgruntled puppy over here who's going to whine throughout uh, all of this in Bleacher Tweets. But uh, you got to check out the Hoop Collective and the Low Post, their crossover that they did on the court after uh, the NBA Finals wrapped up. I listened to it as I was putting together the rundown last night and just the energy and the fun those guys are having, it really shone through. Uh, really a lot of fun to listen to and watch on YouTube. So check that out, the Low Post and the Hoop Collective, wherever you're getting your podcast. You know why Taylor's voice suddenly sped up? is because Dolly behind him is like starting to go through the book bookshelf starting to tear down everything because she wants to go for a walk but you know what she's gonna have to wait through carl through sarah through todd radom coming up we're driven by the search for better when it comes to hiring the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all don't search match with indeed if you need to hire you need indeed Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites according to a recent Indeed survey. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com Buster. Just go to Indeed.com Buster right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Buster. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? 
You need Indeed. Dogs are an important part of our lives, and keeping them protected is a top priority, especially against nasty parasites. That's why you got to check out NexGuard Plus, a Foxaloner, Moxidectin, and Pyrantal chewable tablets. NexGuard Plus chews provide one-and-done monthly protection that kills fleas and ticks, prevents heartworm disease, plus it treats and controls roundworms and hookworms. That's a whole lot of protection packed into a delicious beef-flavored soft chew designed to make monthly dosing easy and enjoyable. So the next time you're at the vet, ask about NexGuard Plus Chews. They're the one-and-done monthly parasite protection you want for your dog. Used with caution in dogs with a history of seizures or neurological disorders. Dogs should be tested for existing heartworm infection prior to starting preventive. All aboard! It's the Rabbit Train with Carl Rabbit. And, of course, the Rabbit Train right now in Omaha, Nebraska, uh, the land of Sarah Abbott. <laughs> Carl, how you doing? This is it right here. Nothing changes in Omaha. It's beautiful. It's very consistent. It's comfortable. I don't think the, uh, the blinds have changed. The shades haven't changed. In fact, I seriously believe that the last six years I've been in the exact same hotel room, um, which is the great part about Omaha, Buster. There's, there is a consistency to it. The only thing that changes are the, are the schools that come here and the teams. And this is a, this is a uniquely exciting year going in, given the talent level we have here. Probably the top three picks if uh, the teams go collegiately. Two of them play for LSU. And I'll say this, Buster, as we you know, look forward to Major League Baseball the next few years, the size of these players is so different. They are so big. There's, uh, there's a kid that pitches for LSU. His name is Paul Skeens. Most baseball people know him. He went to Air Force for a couple of years and transferred. He, Buster, he is huge. He, he's, t- he's bigger than Ben McDonald, uh, and you know Ben McDonald is big. Uh, it's literally like watching Aaron Judge, and then he gets on a mound. He's that large. When I, when I saw him for the first time in person, I said, like, that's, that's, not, a, that's not a person. Like, that's not a human. That's not a guy that can pitch. And Florida's got this kid who's just a sophomore, so he's coming back. His name's Jack Caglione. Hit 31 homers. And like in an odd way, I saw him yesterday on the field hitting bombs. I mean, into the concourse, which, as you know, in Omaha, you don't do that. And you can't take your eyes off the guy because he doesn't look like a ball player. You know, you know the way that Stanton fills out a uniform? Like, this guy is larger than that. And... He looks the part. He, he, he looks like Rocky in a baseball uniform. His shoe size is 17. 17. He, he has to order special shoes. You know, all these colleges get great shoes and their deals. He can't fit into the same shoe. They have to send him a special shoe. So the individual players are great. The teams are great. It, 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 you know, the only X factor for us here is weather. If we can get past weather, it's always a great event. So I, I read our colleague Jeff Passon wrote a piece, and, and uh, he's referred to as Jack Tawny because yeah, of the two-way yes. player. That's, right. you know, that's a pretty good nickname to have in 2023, right? It, it sure it, is. It uh, conveys a lot of respect. And by the way, I'm assuming that the room you're in now is called the Carl Ravage Suite because <laughs> you've spent so much time in Omaha, right? Yeah, they, they, haven't put the la- they haven't put that room label outside yet. It just says 80-20. There's no other distinction, but sure, for these week, this week and a half, two weeks, uh, that's how I treat it. I mean, we do we do take it over. We got all sorts of things in the refrigerator, and my shelves outside are stocked with uh, hot and spicy Cheez-Its, mandatory at the College World Series, and uh, and other assorted items. Yogurt is filling up the refrigerator on the bottom. So yeah, we're in we're in good we're in good shape. And the people, I will say this: I mean, the people in Omaha are tremendous. This this is a a city that embraces this event like like no other. It's really really cool. Real quick, uh, tell me when your first game is on, and tell me if, yeah. if Eduardo Perez, we talked about his absurd travel schedule he's been going yes. through. He's right oh, yeah. in the middle of – tell me how he's doing. Give me a scouting report on him. Uh, so Yeah, no, Eduardo was good. So Eduardo and I, um, after the Sunday night game, uh, we got up real early, and we flew 
uh, to Omaha, direct from New York. He was at the airport. He had to check a bag. Oh, because, no, no, no. I can no, no. tell already. You're completely confused. You said after the Sunday night game. No, it I know, was. I, I'm right, well he was aware. In New I haven't York. gotten there. I know I haven't <laughs> gotten there yet because he, he was, I said he had to check a big bag. So he got to the airport early and he had to check a big bag because he doesn't just go to New York. He made a small trip to London, England, so he could see Harry Styles. He's been showing everybody the Harry Styles concert on his phone. So, again, Buster goes from, um, I guess he came from Miami to New York, then went to London, then came to Omaha, all in like a 60-hour period. And typical of Eduardo, we were having dinner last night. He's in the same mood he's always in. He's saying hi to everybody. Uh, and love the Harry Styles concert. He, he's ready to go. Our first game, Eduardo, me, Ben McDonald, and uh, Danny Wexelman is today. It's at uh, 1 o'clock local time, 2 Eastern. It'll be the upstart, Oral Roberts, Golden Eagles, 51-12. and 12. Uh, One of those Cinderella teams like Stony Brook and Fresno State a few years ago uh, against Kirk Sarlos, who, of course, you know, he's now the head man at TCU. That gets it started. It, that that should be uh, that should be a good one. Two brackets in the College World Series. Um, our bracket has Virginia, Florida. Feels like 2015 all over again. Kevin O'Sullivan with Florida's got a really good team. Brian O'Connor, of course. Virginia doesn't. Virginia's like the Rays. They they don't make any mistakes, and they really are a tough team to play against. And they're really good. And then on the other side, there's Wake Forest, the number one overall seed. There's LSU. There's Tennessee. There's there's just Stanford. There's four teams that could win the World Series, and they're in one bracket. So that's what makes it really exciting and, and different this year. And you know Yankees catcher Jose Trevino, uh, oh. Trevino will be all over it because Oral Roberts, I mean, during that whole Sunday night game the other night, he's asking for updates, saying, please tell me how we're doing. You guys are passing on information so I could pass to him in the dugout. It, it was really cool. All right, I'm yeah. going to hit with you with this cold before we talk about Shohei Otani. Uh, as of today, let's say that someone came to you and said, look, you have to place a bet on one team to win the World Series. You, know, you got to put all your fortune, your house, the more, everything uh, on that bet. Which team would you pick as of today? And I'm not going to hold you to it, Carl. It's only yeah. to talk about sort of the shifting tides of baseball. As of today, who would you pick? I would probably pick Atlanta. Um, as the most well-rounded team with guys that I think are going to be important down the stretch, you know, Max Freed, uh, there's, there's, there's a unique chemistry about them. I see Harris is starting to play a little bit better. I, probably, I, I think Atlanta would be the team that I would pick today to be the World Series favorite today. All right, really scary because I'm right with you. Uh, I think they would be the safe bet as of today, yeah. in part because I think the path through the National League at this moment Looks easier than it does in the American League, right? Where you got yeah, the but, Tampa Bay Rays, you but got getting the harder, Texas. but getting yes. a little harder, right? Exactly. <laughs> but I, you know, as of this moment, the American League looks stacked with those teams from the East, with the Rangers, with the Astros, the Angels playing better. Yeah. Uh, so you know, we'll see. I'll probably ask you that same question in another month or so. Shohei Otani. I don't think there's any doubt, Carl. Uh, this is the best Otani as a hitter we've ever seen. You know, I was texting back and forth yesterday with Rangers manager Bruce Bochy, and he talked about how there have been times in the past when Otani has spun off the ball, uh, especially against left-handed pitching, and maybe leaks out a little bit on the front side. But now he's made this adjustment. The last two nights we've seen him hit these monster homers to left center field. He's staying yeah. in against yeah. lefties, against righties. Last 12 games, Carl, his numbers. 489 batting average, 1683 OPS, seven homers, and these are the numbers that absolutely jump out of me, 10 walks, eight strikeouts. Now, on the pitching side, I will tell you, before last night, the previous two months have, were not good. It was like eight starts, 488 ERA. He went into that game leading Major League Baseball in hit batsmen, wild pitches, questions about his command, questions about his velocity. And that start last night against a really great Texas lineup, uh, he had the highest velocity since opening day, and he walked one guy. So yeah. we might be seeing the best Otani we've ever seen. Yeah, which, which says a lot, um, you know, and his ability to adjust. And, and uh, he had some good comments after last night's game in which I believe, if I'm not mistaken, read that the ball he hit the other way for the homer was the hardest 
hit by a left-hander the other way and the stat cast error just as far as uh, exit velocity. And, and, you know, we, we know how strong he is. So that, that part made it unique. Uh, but he said, look, the, the results are there. But more importantly, the approach is there. Like, he, he recognizes that he's balanced. And sometimes, to your point, he spins out. He knows that right now he's seeing the ball really well. He's hitting it really hard. Doesn't always result, you know, in the numbers you just gave. But now the results are there. But his ability to dismiss sort of the outcome of the process, if the process is sound and solid, he's mature enough to realize, well, you know, not all the time am I going to hit it over the wall. Not all the time is it going to get in there for a double. Uh, that, that's a huge maturation component, which he's always exhibited, but he verbalized it last night. And to the point about pitching, he threw 29 pitches in the first inning. Like, as we all know, most good starting pitchers, you better get them in the first or you're yeah. in trouble. And they had them. I mean, 29 pitches, and he got through that, and then he, and then he sailed. And as you know, Phil Nevin, who we both like a lot, and Nevin said, look, Aaron Judge is like a son to me. I don't know how Otani didn't win the MVP last year, and he was better than he was the year that he did win it. And he's clearly the MVP again this year, having tied Alonso for the major league lead in homers. Like, it's not – you can frame the discussion any way you want. You can rationalize in your mind somebody else should win it. But if we're being honest – Nobody in the world does what he does. That's what makes that's what makes this event here a little more interesting because that guy I told you, Jack Tani, he is Otani because he does pitch and he smashes the baseball. And we'll see if uh, if if Otani is obviously the bar and the blueprint. Can anyone else come close to doing those things? So there is there is that tie-in to Otani and Jack Caglione of of Florida, and that's. That's the greatest compliment you can pay to a collegiate is to even mention him in the same breath as Otani because, again, it continues to be, you know, Ruthie in, in some ways and, and better than Babe Ruth ever was. Yeah, the big question in the upcoming offseason, will the contract offers that he gets, you know, will they start with the number five? Will they start with the number six? $500 million, $600 million. I will tell you that there is a conversation among teams that are evaluating him why has he stopped throwing a split-finger fastball, which was considered to be one of the best pitches in baseball? Um, they don't know the answer to that. You know, that's something we're going to be talking about uh, coming up. All right, the Oakland ballpark situation continues to play out. Uh, it seems imminent at this point that the A's are going to wind up in Las Vegas. Rob Manfred got a lot of attention, as you know, uh, with the comments yesterday basically saying, well, there was never really an offer from Oakland. The city of Oakland responded. I would say this, Carl, you know, this is a moment – when it's a reminder that, you know, Rob Manfred works for the owners. He is the owner's lawyer. Uh, you know, I think sometimes fans believe that the commissioner sort of, uh, you know, represents everybody. He doesn't. And I think this is a classic situation of that where, you know what, uh, he he's essentially works for John Fisher, the Oakland, uh, the Oakland owner who looks like is going to move the team. Uh, there's still some steps to take before that happens. Uh, that was a head-scratching statement for me, Carl. What about you? Yeah, I, I think I think it's nuanced in in what a commissioner in all sports is supposed to do because they are the de facto president of the sport. Like you're the guy that was elected. You're you're the you're the person in charge of the sport, meaning all of the aspects of it. And while at its core he represents the owners. You can literally the next hour or the next day when we're Im implementing rules, et cetera, assign that responsibility of commissioner to ownership of the entire sport. You know, you are there to improve the game. You are having an ear to the fans and they want these things. We've done surveys. This is what they want. And yet literally a minute later, you're on the phone with John Fisher uh, or Randy Levine of the Yankees or whoever it may be, owner of X team, and you are listening to what they're saying and you're going to try the best you can to solve their problem. At the same time, if you represent John Fisher, you do also represent Artie Moreno. You, you represent all of them. It is, um, not, this is not a defense. It's, to me, it's an impossible situation because you're trying to placate 
30 different owners who have, for the most part, 30 different agendas. You yep. also have one foot in the pool of, I got to be concerned about fan bases in these cities. I have to listen to what they say. But if, if you're going to say John Fisher versus open fan, at some point, somebody's getting drowned out in the equation. Um, and, yes. you know, somebody's getting drowned out. And I'll be honest, Buster, as you know, and anybody that's covered the sport, you know, for three decades, this has been such a quicksand type equation in both Tampa and Oakland. I mean, how many years has this been discussed without a a resolution? So the idea that we arrived at a finish line where there was, you know, we're saying things like there was never a proposal. Uh, Frankly, I have no idea if there was ever a formal proposal it did feel like these cities were trying. That doesn't mean they were trying hard enough for John Fisher, Major League Baseball. I think in the end, when you when you look at the history of this thing and you see where uh, the Las Vegas Knights and the football team in the NFL have gone, that the, the, the door to Las Vegas and a professional sports team was opened. Major League Baseball walked through it after others did. It, it was inevitable personally, that there was going to be a major league team in Las Vegas one way or the other because the market seems to be the market, not necessarily the people that are going to be in those seats because I'm, I'm, I'm suspect of, of how that works 81 times in Las Vegas. Yeah, we'll no see. Kidding. We'll see. But it's quite clear that the hockey team has succeeded. The football team has obviously been a success. There's gambling money there. Uh, there's a lot of attention on that market. So, you know, the idea that I feel bad for the fans in Oakland, I, okay, I, that, that one, I heard that, and I, I read that last night while we were at dinner on the bottom line. You know, sometimes there are things that are said that I, you know, personally I sit there and be like, hmm, you know, I don't, if you felt that bad, you, maybe you could have pushed the other way and got the owner to get a deal done. But I, I do think he was involved in trying to keep a team in Oakland at some point along this journey. Yeah, and I think it really comes down to this. There are owners who believe that, uh, you know, their stewardship of their respective professional sports franchises are essentially carrying on a trust for a fan base, right? I really believe Hal Steinbrenner thinks that way. I think Peter Seidler thinks that way. Uh, And it's pretty clear that John Fisher is at the other end of the spectrum. And I think there are a lot of people in baseball who are watching this play out, and they're going to vote yes uh, eventually on this move to Las Vegas while holding their nose because they know the whole thing stinks. Anyway, I, I wouldn't argue uh, I've got SportsCenter coming up in five minutes, so I want to run through rapid-fire session with you, get uh, thoughts on some of these topics from you before you go. Uh, the Philadelphia Phillies, they are who you thought they were before the season started. They won 10 of their last 12 games. I, I listened to an interview with Nick Castellanos basically saying he and Bryce Harper talked and they're like, hey, why did we stop doing these things that we did last year in terms of, you know, enjoying the emotion of each day? And, man, they are gathering momentum, and they know they can do it because they did it last year in terms of picking themselves up in the middle of the year. Yeah, look, slow start. Uh, You play through October. You play through a World Series. It happens to a lot of teams when they come back the next year. The talent is always there. Wheeler looks tremendous. Uh, That's why I felt that way, and yet you asked me earlier today who wins the World Series if I had to pick one team. It wasn't the team that I thought was going to win the World Series, the Phillies, but but boy, that's why we said that the league is getting tougher, and the Phillies are one of the major reasons. So I'm, I'm quite pleased with the way they're playing. They're a really good team and fun to watch. Stott's been great all year. I said to Tim Kirchin earlier this week, I mean, we've got the Red Sox and Yankees again this weekend, that it's fast, uh, we're fast approaching the time when the Red Sox ownership needs to declare the direction of the team. Look, if uh, Bloom is your guy and you think he's the voice you want to support going forward, then come out and say it. You know, John, John Henry, Sam Kennedy, come out and say, you know what, Heim is someone who's going to take this team into the future and have uh, Heim do the trades that look inevitable at this point with the way the team is playing. Uh, and if he's not the guy, then you know, they should make that decision now because one of the, you know, questions about Haim and his time running the team is a lot of those trades he's made haven't necessarily worked out. Oh, sign on that, Carl, that ownership needs to declare itself. Uh, to, you know, to some extent, Buster, because I think, I think ownership has declared themselves. I mean, this is, again, we, we, we harp on it. 
they're a competitive team that is the fifth best team in their own division. Um, right. So at some point, at some point, you say this this team is now going to be broken up, and we're going to trade certain players because other teams need them, and we're going to continue to start this. I think the biggest challenge for them and for Heim in this market, to me, in this market, the expectation is to be not only competitive in the sense that we can we can beat each team, but we're not as good, to be as good as those teams, to be the team that can win the World Series. I, I think when you've won three in the time frame they've won them, to, to then go into, and I, I don't want to call it the, the Tampa Bay mode, but there clearly is something different about the way the Red Sox approach has been under Bloom. Then let's say, to your point, the Padres, the Phillies, the Yankees. Uh, it's very different. And to me, the Red Sox as an organization in that city with the expectations is you, you need to be in that, that conversation with what you're spending, what the expectation is, and to do it that way. Toronto even is doing it more that way. And it's a, that's a difficult thing, I think, for Red Sox fans and, and being from up there and hearing from – Hundreds of them, they don't understand it. And I think you'd agree with me on this. They are competitive, but they're competitive for one of the bottom wild card spots. They're not and close. That's, that's to not being... the pool you. Yeah, that's not the pool you should swim in. I don't personally. Yeah. I don't. I don't think. All right. Uh, the Yankees. You've now seen multiple times. <laughs> Seems like we. You know what? Uh, the game in L.A., the game in Yankee Stadium, the game in City Field the other day. Uh, we talked about it uh, last Sunday that this Aaron Judge injury, it's very touchy. And, and I, I mentioned uh, on the broadcast on Sunday that I think the Yankees would feel great if Judge came back before the All-Star break. They're clearly a different team without him. Tell me what you saw in the Yankees on Wednesday at City Field. Yeah, you know, the Yankees um, the Yankees are, are a different – they are a different team. I, I asked – Aaron Boone, as sort of you put on your baseball tonight analyst cap, if you could, is there a more important player to a team than Aaron Judge? And we talked about Otani already, um, and, he's, and he smirked. Uh, you know, he smiled. And in his world, and this is where the, it's hard for him to switch from Yankee manager to baseball tonight analyst. But there was, <laughs> as there, much there as was we want it to happen. <laughs> there was an acknowledgement there, like, you know, okay, yeah. I, I think he is. I think the impact that he's had on, on Anthony Rizzo being out. Um, look, the, the lineup is so di- when you when you take, um, you know, King Kong off the Empire State Building, it's the Empire State Building. When you take Aaron Judge out of the New York Yankee lineup, it's another lineup right now. Um, so nobody has to me as big an impact on a team. But I will say this. Their bullpen, Buck Walter said, their bull, they have more arms than any team in baseball. So yep. the, Yankees to, the Yankees are going to be um, a threat to win the World Series all year long. Um, and I, think that, I, I don't think they would be upset about if the Rays run away and you just can't catch them because of the incredible winning percentage they have. We're okay with that. We can win on the road if we have to. Um, and I feel that way about the Yankees when judges in that lineup. They can win the World Series because Cole's pitching great, and man, do they have arms in that bullpen. Arms forever. And that's, that's yeah, a and huge thing. There, there's no doubt about it. The other day I texted uh, Booney and I said, one word, describe your bullpen, and it's versatile. Uh, you know, and if he had a second word, he probably could have used dominant because that's, as you say, that's how folks with other uh, teams feel yeah. about it. You know, the big question going forward you know, the health of individual stars like Judge, like Carlos Rodon, and, you know, yep. we'll see. But I know privately they feel like, boy, if we can put it all together, if Judge gets back and he's healthy, then we're a really dangerous team, and, you know, we'll see where that goes. All right, Rabbi, uh, enjoy the Carl Rabbit suite, even though they haven't put a plaque on it yet. Not yet. Uh, and have fun in Omaha. All right, we'll see you Sunday. This is the Numbers Game with Sarah Langs. Sarah Langs, reporter, producer for MLB.com. Sarah, how you doing on this Friday? I'm doing great, Buster. How are you? I'm doing great. Uh, I will give everyone advance warning. Sarah will not be on the show on Monday because she's traveling out to be at the Draft Combine. 
Yeah, I'm really excited for it. This is the third year we're doing this. It's a relatively new event for Major League Baseball, but so much fun just to see all the young draft prospects and everyone is so excited and there's so many numbers. So we have StatCast out of flowing in during BP, during bullpen sessions, everything. And I'm kind of there to explain what numbers we're looking for and what numbers front offices are looking at as well. All right. Uh, I'm going to hit you with this cold. It's the question of the day on the podcast. Uh, as of today, and I'm not going to hold you this even tomorrow or the next day, but as of today, uh, if you were to uh, make a bet on one team to win the World Series, which team would that be as of today? And the reason why I was asked, it was inspired by a question I got for Daily Wager later today. Uh, and I Pretty clear answer in my head. And interestingly, and I'm not going to tell you what Carl Ravage's answer was. He was just on with me. Carl and I landed on the same team. Who you got? Uh, all right. So, And I'm not going to come back like in three months and say, well, you picked this team to win. No, that's not, uh, that's not this exercise. So I think I need to be strategic. I don't think it can be an American League team because those playoffs are going to be a lot more contentious because I think there are multiple teams in the American League that could uh, really win that league. And of course, the thing could be true in the National League. But right now, I think I'm also a little bit trying to guess what you guys said. And I'm <laughs> guessing that you guys said the Braves. Because of that offense around Acuna Jr. Now, I don't, I'm not saying necessarily that they're the best team in baseball. They're not as of right now for doing power rankings. But if you're the Tampa Bay Rays, you're going to have to contend with, first of all, that entire AL East. They won't all be in the playoffs, but some of those teams will be. And the Rangers and the Astros, whereas right now, View the Braves, the National League is not looking quite as scary in the postseason. Taylor, I'm going to bring in on this for a couple of reasons. One, uh, how scary is it that Sarah and I, our brains worked exactly the same way, saying the path is easier through the National League <laughs> than the American League? And yes, I landed on the Braves. How incredible is that? <laughs> she nailed it. <laughs> Thanks for bringing it because I was I was actually LOLing over here as she said it. So uh, you're, you're spot on. It's like you guys have done the show together before a few times. Right, exactly. And the second thing is that, uh, Taylor, I think Sarah has solved your problem for today uh, in terms of naming the show. I think Contentious Playoffs is a great title. What do you think? Nailed it. Nailed it. And it won't be a mystery either because sometimes I name it after things Sarah says and she texts me. is like, oh my gosh, the name. So, you know, Sarah, we can forego that text message today. You just freed some time up. Congratulations. <laughs> yeah, I love that way to sort of cast what the American League playoffs are going to be like. That, uh, that's awesome. All right, let's play the numbers game. Number three. Number three is 14. So speaking of those Braves, they've hit 14 home runs of at least 450 feet this season. No other team has more than six of those. So the most 450-foot home runs by a team in a single season under Sackhouse, which goes back to 2015, is 19 by the Rockies in 2021. We know Coors Field makes these things a bit easier. So the most for a non-Rocky team, because the first few on the list are all Rockies, is 15 by the Marlins in 2017 and the Yankees in 2017, which, by the way, means Aaron Judge and Sin, right, in the same year. But that means the Braves today, entering June 16th, are one home run away at 450 feet from tying the most we've seen from any team that doesn't play course field in the season under Sackhouse. It isn't just Ronald Acuna Jr. Yesterday was Matt Olson. Austin Riley also has, I believe, three of these. They have been quite the offense to contend with. Number two. Number two is, let's say four, because we're talking about Grand Slams. 
the last night, Chris Taylor hit a game time grand slam, and it was his hundredth career home run. And a couple innings later, I'm listening to the White Sox broadcast, and Jason Benetti mentioned that Chris Taylor's first career home run was also a grand slam. So, of course, I'm sitting there, and I need to know if anyone else has had a grand slam for their first career home run and their hundredth career home run. And yeah, this is pretty self-selecting. You have to have at least 100 home runs. There are a couple other factors involved. But he is the first player in MLB history to have a grand slam for both his first and 100th career home runs. He was the 25th player did a grand slam for his 100th. He's one of 211 with a grand slam for his first, but he is the only guy on both of those lists. Number one. Number one is just one for everything Shohei Otani has been doing lately. If we were (laughs) taping this on Thursday, I'd be talking about him hitting the hardest off-the-field home run by a lefty track by Stackhouse which he did on Wednesday at 116.1 miles an hour. But then he added more ones, more first last night. So he hits another home run, pitches not the absolute sparkling we've seen from him, but certainly well enough, allows to run. At the end of the day, he is tied with Pete Alonzo for most home runs in baseball with 22. And... He has the lowest opponent batting average allowed in the majors among qualified pitchers. So no player has finished the season leading both of those categories since earned runs became official in both leagues. So since we had qualified starting pitchers. But okay, maybe someone led for a day, did this for a point, but didn't finish the season that way. Nope, he is the first player to have a share of the MLB lead in home runs hit and batting average lab with a minimum of 70 innings pitch at the end of any given day in the modern era, going back to 1900. Now, of course, there's really only one guy who we thought might have done that, and that's Babe Ruth. But again, it is amazing. He is so far Past favorites at this point, he is doing things that the sample size of guys who even could have done this is so, so small, and he's the only one doing it. All right, two follow-ups on that. Uh, I want to see if you agree with my assessments. As a hitter, this is the best Otani we've ever seen. I gave some of the numbers to Carl Ravitch last 12 games, hitting 489, seven homers, 10 walks and 8 strikeouts, 10 to 8 walk to strikeout ratio. Uh, I was texting back and forth with your good friend, Bruce Bochy, the manager of the Texas Rangers, and I said, what are you seeing in Otani? And he mentioned that there have been times during Otani's career, especially against left-handed pitchers, that he'll leak out. His front side will leak out, spin off the ball a little bit more. The fact that he's driving the ball to left center field and staying in, he had uh, that first second deck home run was hit off a lefty Will Smith, tells you he is locked in like never before. As a pitcher at the moment, I would say that Otani's a bit of a mystery. Uh, he had a nice outing last night against the Rangers. Uh, in the eight outings before that, in an ERA close to five, as you know, led the American League in hit batsmen, or all of baseball in hit batsmen and wild pitches going to that start yesterday. He had the highest velo since opening day yesterday, and that was good. But there are teams, and there are teams who are looking at this uh, in part because they are going to take a run at him as a free agent in the fall. They are asking the question, what's up with his command, and why is he not throwing a split-fingered fastball? So he's kind of viewed as a little bit of a mystery at the moment. What do you think? Well, starting with the first, I agree 100%. You know, again, watching last night, at one point, Wayne Randazzo, so I think after um, after he got a hit, he mentioned, oh, he's up to 299. I believe he's hitting 300 or 299 right now. Benny Everett, not the end-all be-all, but Otani has not been a 300 hitter before. And seeing him striking out less, 
and definitely seeing them all better has been very clear to me, uh, certainly over the last month or so, and just overall for the season. You know, if you want to compare this to 2021, he's doing the same stuff with the power, but as you're saying, he just seems much more controlled, and that's a really good thing to see. And I agree about the pitching because early in the year, he early in the year, he looked the best he had looked on the mound. He was getting off to all of these incredible stats to start this season. And it was really building off of last year where I think he was a better pitcher than he was here. I mean, it's impossible to compare, but for him. But I think the other way to look at it is that he is so talented. There's no other pitcher out there who develops pitches in season the way he has the last two years and is able to, as you said, pitch without his velocity for two months and then bring it back and really change the way he pitches during the year. Now, I agree, not using the split, which has been very pronounced lately, could be concerning. But his sweeping slider has been so good that that has kind of become his go-to. And again, I'm just so impressed by the fact that he's able to go between all of these things while also hitting 453-foot home runs. You know, if you're a normal starting pitcher, you have four or five days to think about this in between starts. He doesn't have that same time. So... Well, it would be better to see him be consistent and be more dominant in that way and certainly get the control back. I think the fact that he has been searching and still has been good enough is also really encouraging that he didn't just totally break down. He's had times throughout his career where he really hasn't had the command and control and that's really what he cleaned up in the middle of 2021 onward. So it seems like something he can recapture again. Well, and I can tell you this, um, a lot of folks in baseball staffers, and they don't mean this as a criticism of an event, but they note that the common denominator between a lot of these guys who've struggled, Sandy Alcantara, Otani, you know, in terms of command, up and down, Trey Turner, uh, is that they played in the WBC. And the normal preparation ramp up into the regular season was just different. And we don't know for sure, but I know some people are kind of wondering uh, if that might be a factor. And again, it's not, uh, it's not, they're not going to change anything going forward with the WBC, but they, it's that common denominator has been noted by a lot of people I've spoken with. I mean, I certainly see that for Sandy and for Trey Turner, but Shohei Otani got off to one of his best starts of his career pitching-wise. So for him, it really seems like it's been over this last month or so. Um, now, of course, preparing doesn't only show in the first month. Preparing can show how you react when you encounter adversity. There can be so many other things. But he actually seemed to really go off of that momentum of the WBC right at the beginning of the year, and then something seems to have shifted. All right, Sarah. We will talk to you next Wednesday. Have fun. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Vivid Seats wants to get you to the games you love this spring. Experience every pitch, assist, and game-winning shot live and in person. And the best part? Each transaction is a step toward a free 11 ticket with Vivid Seats rewards. Score unbeatable perks like free tickets, surprise seat upgrades, and annual birthday deals. As the official ticketing partner of ESPN, Vivid Seats is offering you $20 off your first $200 ticket purchase with Code Baseball. That's Code Baseball. Visit VividSeats.com or download the app today. Vivid Seats, experience it live. For the ones who get it done, Granger offers high quality supplies and solutions for every industry, as well as access to product specialists who have the knowledge and experience to answer your toughest questions. Plus, their commitment to being your safety partner can help you keep your facilities safe and your people safer. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. 
Todd Radom is the chief executive of our weekly quiz. He's a graphic artist whose work can be seen on ball fields all around America, all across the world, or you can go to his website, toddradom.com. Todd, how you doing? Good morning, Buster. I am well, sir. All right. So uh, you are a huge baseball fan uh, besides the work that you do, which is why you're fully qualified, wholly qualified to answer the question of the day is, which is as of today, and I'm not going to hold you to this the whole season. As of today, which team would you bet on to win the World Series? Wow, Buster. I mean, I can I can walk to a casino and put a bet down right here. And if I were going to do that, I would uh, I would put my money on the Houston Astros. Oh, okay. I'll let, uh, you came in uh, a little different than what uh, the answers we got. Todd Ra- or Carl Ravitch and I landed on the Atlanta Braves. Sure, uh, I can see you it. Know, in part because. And I'm curious about your perspective on this. I feel like at the moment, the path through the National League is easier than the American League, where you have all those teams in the East, the Rays, the Orioles playing great, you know, the Yankees uh, when they get judged back at some point. And then you have, of course, the Rangers, highest scoring team in baseball. You've got the Houston Astros. Maybe the Mariners get involved. It feels like it's an easier path in the NL. Does that make sense? It does make sense, but as we both know, um, the rubber meets the road after July 4th, maybe after All-Star, and when it comes to October, teams that have been there before, I think at least, have a distinct advantage, um, and nobody has a better advantage at this point than the Houston Astros. Yeah, I would agree with you. Uh, Your work as a graphic artist uh, is effectively done with fans in mind. Like, you're not picking... You're not drawing a logo without thinking of the impact it's going to have on the consumers. And so with that context, tell me what you were feeling this week as you watched that situation in Oakland play out. Oh, well, you feel so badly for these fans, these fans who have uh, shown up, shown out, and um, and they're getting screwed. They're getting a, royal, a raw deal. We saw the same thing happen in Montreal all those years ago. It was a vocal minority in both cases. But what's your, you know, why do you want to be parted uh, from your money if you're an Oakland A's fan at this point? So they came out strong. It seems to be a last hurrah. And yes, to your point, Buster, everything I do is created with um, a sense of locality in mind, trying to uh, target the heartstrings of a particular fan base. And then Oakland fan base has so much history. 55 years. So much. So much. I mean, world championship teams that people younger than us are not going to have firsthand memories of, and we do. Um, A colorful franchise in every conceivable respect. And um, you lose a big, big, big piece of a lot of things when you move to Las Vegas and start from scratch. You know, I bring this up all the time in situations like this. I think of the last scene in Goodfellas. Right. Where Henry Hill gets sent to, you know, the witness protection program and he's living anonymously in some cul-de-sac community in Arizona or something. And he says, you know, I used to be somebody and now I'm just a schnook. So they start over again in Las Vegas, presumably sooner rather than later, you would think. And they leave all that history behind. And we don't know what they're getting into over there. No, it, 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 as I said to Carl Ravitch, that, you know, even his other owners uh, eventually, we believe, approved this move of the athletics to Las Vegas. A lot of them are going to be holding their nose and they're going to be embarrassed by by how this is played out. And, you know, as you were talking, I was thinking, you know, this isn't necessarily the Dodgers leaving Ebbets Field. But you know what? I don't think it's that far off. I don't think it's that far off, given the history of the franchise, given what they've accomplished in Oakland. Um, and, and part of me wonders if it's going to be a situation where, uh, you know, the team moves to Las Vegas, the A's move to Las Vegas, and then at some point in the next 10 years, they make some sort of a deal with the Giants and they put it in an expansion franchise back in Oakland. We'll see. I don't, I don't know. It's pretty ugly. It is. It's hard to get things built in California. We can say that and we can say that, um, you know, the the situation that's led to this at one point, I believe the mayor of Oakland issued a statement yesterday talking about how at uh, when they last left off, the athletics wanted a uh, a Braves like development complex, essentially. And now they have settled for a uh, at least nine acre stay uh, um nine acre site in Vegas 
that will solely hold the ballpark. So the goalposts shifted in a lot of ways and places change, Buster. We know this. Um, so what, what is the, uh, what does the economy hold in the next, you know, 10 years? Who knows? I have no idea, but you would think that what's going to happen is the dominoes are going to fall. Tampa Bay will find a way to get a stadium in St. Petersburg. And then we've got expansion and all of a sudden, you know, Oakland will get left behind. This is just the way this goes. Nashville will come in. Is it Salt Lake City? Is it a place like Charlotte? Who knows? But it's not going to be Oakland for a while. And we've been talking about Montreal as a potential candidate for expansion or less likely to have a team move there. And meanwhile, the uh, Nationals have been in place for, what, 18 years now. So it might take a while. Yeah. And folks in Oakland would probably push back against the uh, the athletics ownership uh, when they talk about them needing uh public funding and just say, Hey, look across the Bay. The giants did their own ball. A billionaire paid for his own ballpark uh, with the giants and they've done. Okay. Let's just say it's worked out well. for, a, for a well, team that, uh, People, people, we can go off the tracks here, but people forget at uh, what a dumpster fire of a franchise the giants were in the early eighties, late seventies, early eighties. And so what happens is, yeah, they are, they are floundering. They're almost going to move to Toronto and St. Petersburg and then Peter McGowan and his group comes in and they take this chance. They build the first publicly funded stadium in Major League Baseball since Dodger Stadium in 1962. And they are now a financial juggernaut, probably number five or six in terms of annual revenue. So, yeah, the model is there and it's right across the bay. Yeah, privately funded. I think you, you said publicly funded. I know oh, privately funded. funded. I'm sorry. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's OK. All right. Let's get to this week's Forgotten Field. All right, Buster, today we are going to talk about a stadium that was home to the Pittsburgh Pirates for almost exactly 61 years, Forbes Field. The Bucks inaugurated Forbes Field against the Chicago Cubs on June 30th, 1909, and closed it out against the same club on June 28th, 1970. The stadium also hosted the legendary Homestead Grays of Josh Gibson and was the first home of the Pittsburgh Steelers. It was the site of Babe Ruth's final three career home runs and Bill Mazeroski's historic Game 7 World Series walk-off in 1960. In Forbes Field's final or first season, the Pirates defeated the Detroit Tigers in the World Series. Located on seven acres adjacent to Shanley Park in the Oakland neighborhood, three miles from downtown Pittsburgh, Forbes Field was among the first modern stadiums built of fireproof steel and masonry. It was the first million-dollar ballpark, and amazingly, it was constructed in just 122 days. Forbes Field contained a bunch wow. of innovations. Inclined ramps were substituted for steps, helping fans get to and from their seats with speed. Spacious clubhouses equipped with laundry facilities were built for the home and road teams, as well as locker rooms for umpires. And elevators were installed to ferry patrons to third-tier roof boxes. The ballpark included public telephones, and at a time when the automobile was still in its infancy, it featured an expansive underground parking garage for cars. Forbes Field was visually striking. The ballpark itself was opulent, with a buff-colored terracotta exterior and extensive light green steelwork, and the roof was covered in red-tinted slate. There was never any advertising signage there other than brief periods during World Wars I and II, when patriotic messages were temporarily added. It sat in a lush park-like setting, removed from the pollution and bustle of downtown Pittsburgh. Pirates owner Barney Dreyfus was the man who built this ballpark, and he was the man who hated cheap home runs. The original distances to the outfield fences buster were 360 feet to left, 462 to center, and 376 to right. The ballpark's point was a corner, uh, the ballpark's uh, farthest reaches, a corner just left of center field, 457 from home plate with a flagpole and batting cages in play. These dimensions led to a lot of triples. On May 30th, 1925, the Pirates hit a record eight three-baggers in a single game. By the late 1950s, Forbes Field was outmoded and beginning to show its age, and every club seemed to want a modern stadium, similar to what the Braves' new home in Milwaukee offered with spacious parking lots and unobstructed views devoid of girders and beams. The area around Forbes Field was changing too, as the University of Pittsburgh was growing by leaps and bounds. 
The college purchased Forbes Field in 1958 with an agreement to lease the stadium back to the Bucks until a replacement could be found. That eventual replacement was Three Rivers Stadium, which finally opened in 1970. But today, Buster, we give a nod to Forbes Field, which is this week's Forgotten Field. And Todd, you know this, Forbes Field uh, was effective, effectively served as the inspiration for modern, most of the now uh, modern day parks because Larry Lucchino, uh, who was of course with the Baltimore Orioles in the 1980s, uh, he grew up in Pittsburgh. He went to Forbes Field and what he told Janet Marie Smith and Janet Marie Smith has told this story in the podcast, he wanted to see steel. He wanted steel and unless he did not want concrete. And out of that came Camden Yards. Out of Camden Yards came this wave of other ballparks. So Forbes Field, an incredibly important field in the history of Major League Baseball. Yeah, continues to resonate all these years after it it hit the dust, basically, Buster. And Janet Marie Smith is uh, actually has been spiffing up PNC Park in Pittsburgh. Beautiful ballpark, but beginning to show its age a little bit. It's more than two decades old at this point. And uh, I have, uh, she commissioned me to do a couple of pieces of art for the ballpark. So go to Pittsburgh and have a look at my stuff. Yeah. Taylor, did you know that? Did you know the ballpark that you love, Camden Yards, inspired by Forbes Field? I did not. Wow. What a, what a nice, tasty nugget on a Friday. This is wonderful. Thank nice. you, Todd. Okay. <laughs> well, I hope that uh, will not help you in this week's quiz, I'm sure. Uh, Todd, what do you got for us? All right, guys, let's do it. Marlins pitcher Sandy Alcantara threw an astounding six complete games last season. So here's this week's question. Only one pitcher has cracked double-digit complete games in a single MLB season in this century. Was it A, Max Scherzer, B, Randy Johnson, C, Roy Halladay, or D, James Shield? Only one pitcher has cracked double-digit complete games in a single MLB season since 2000. Was it Max Scherzer? Oh, I already know what Sarah's going to say. I already know what Sarah's going to say. I'm, I'm a little worried about this. Go well, ahead, Sarah. Could, it could be a letter. So, But let me run them down again. Scherzer, Randy <laughs> Johnson, go, Halliday, or Shields. I think, I think I'm going to go Scherzer. Is that exactly what you were thinking, Buster? No, I didn't think that. Taylor, what you got? <laughs> I'll go Halliday. All right. I thought Sarah was going to say James Shields because, of course, she has spent time in the Tampa Bay area. Uh, you passed on that one. I'm going to go with Big Game James. Oh, Buster, you are completely right because Ugh. it was James Shields. 11 in 2009. Can you believe that? 11 complete games in the season. Sarah was there for the taking. And this is I someone know. that you get a, a ball team that you know. Oh, oh well. <laughs> all right uh thanks for doing this as always all right guys thank you bleacher tweets already buster bleacher tweets for friday we got a couple good ones here i dug into the uh my instagram dms um the bat phone which cameron black at blind qb has he wrote in hello buster as you might remember from my prior bleacher tweets i'm a long-suffering but die-hard royals fan with the trade deadline approaching should the royals consider trading uh salvi while my emotional response is to consider the above words blasphemous the fact is the royals are not winning with him and perhaps could get some good players for him while he still has some good years left also salvi is a good player who I'm sure wants to win again, and God knows he won't be doing it in Kansas City anytime soon. Your thoughts? Yeah, as you were reading that, I saw Dolly behind you, like, grab a hammer and try to take it to the window. <laughs> like, she's ready to break out. So I'll answer this quickly. Uh, look, Cameron, I, I, you know, it's an interesting uh, situation with Salvi Perez. Earlier this week, we heard from J.J. Piccolo, the general manager of the Royals, who basically said, we're not trading him. Like, he said flat out, and here's the reality of it. Salvador Perez wouldn't have a lot of a trade value uh, in part because he's making so much money and he's in his early 30s. And remember last year for weeks, the, the conversation was, well, everyone, Wilson Contreras, a big trade piece. That, that wasn't the case because Wilson Contreras was, uh, you know, he was not considered uh, an elite defensive catcher. And I, you know, have doubts whether or not teams would ante up in a big way for Salvador Perez. It makes more sense for the Royals to keep him. I do think they should have the conversations, though, with other teams just to see what they could get. 
Mr. Jakey writes in Buster, first as an A's fan and a 44-year-old man, I started crying in the car during your interview with Alden Gonzalez. But my question is, can you remind us about the situation with Jeffrey Loria? Didn't he own one team and sell it to Major League Baseball or Major League Baseball gave him a different team? Is that something that could happen in this case with John Fisher? Why can't he sell the A's and be the owner of the expansion team in Vegas? Yeah, and I'll answer this quickly for Dolly's sake. Uh, John, That was John Henry. All right. Who was the Marlins owner? And then they worked out a deal where he would buy the Red Sox. Got it. That makes sense. Uh, Pour one out for Mr. Jakey. He's having a tough week with the A's here. Uh, Gerald Greenberg at Florida Phils writes in, uh, is it time to start paying attention to the Marlins? They're getting some timely hitting. They have that pitching and there might be some opportunities with big money teams struggling. The Heat, the Panthers. Why not the fish? Uh, Gerald, you and I are on the same page. That's why I had Skip Schumacher, the manager of the Marlins, on the podcast on Wednesday. Yeah. Go listen to that if you haven't, Gerald. It was a good interview. Senior B at Senior Betley writes in, what is the deal with the Astros bullpen? Do they? Do you think they look for help? Presley has blown three saves and gave up a home run and the lead last night. Yikes. Yeah, uh, I, I do think that they will look at the deadline for help. I would say this, so, you know, Dusty Baker – um, has watched Ryan Presley get a lot of big outs for him. He's not just going to toss him overboard. And he understands that the Astros at their are, are, would be at their best with their bullpen if Ryan Presley's in the closer role and everybody else is pitching in the middle. Last one for the week. Frank at F Bonfig7 writes in, who should we believe with the band substance checks, the players or the umpires? We keep hearing players say sweat and rosin. Wouldn't umpires be able to tell something that feels different or not? Sure, they can, but who knows? I mean, just think about yourself and your family members. Does everybody feel exactly the same thing? <laughs> you know, I if if uh, you know, I I put down. If, well, it's like anything else. If I gave you a, a piece of key lime pie, everybody's going to perceive that differently. It's a little bit like putting some a pitcher's hand out there and saying, "Hey, what do you feel on their hands?" You're going to get different answers on that. Not, it's not going to be a uniform. Uh, response, which is why I think Max Scherzer had a really good point about the fact that, you mm-hmm. know what, back it up by data. If you see spin rates spiking, that backs up your feeling that he's got sticky stuff on the hand. I love that idea. All right, there you have it. Hashtag Bleacher Tweets on Twitter. As you're watching games this weekend, uh, at CT Schwinkel, I snapped a funny picture of Dolly uh, being an absolute menace uh, during Sarah Langs' uh, segment here. So uh, she would give it a one-star review on iTunes, but I think it was a great show today, today, guys. Yeah, I'm glad we're finishing because she just seems completely disheartened at the moment. <laughs> and she's given up all hope. Like, <laughs> so my, my owner does not care about me. She's lying prone behind Taylor as we wrap up the show, not moving at all. All right, that's it for today. That's it for this week. My thanks to Ravi, Sarah, Todd, Sarah, Taylor, and Dolly. Have a great day, everybody. Thanks for listening. Stay safe. And remember, hate and inequality based on skin color is something we need to fight against every single day.